Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. All of us learned at some point in our life through mathematics or logic to think about sets and subsets, uh, to think about those Boolean, as they sometimes say, Boolean uh, logic. So I might refer, for example, to your clothes, and I might be referring to your socks, or I might be referring to your coat, because both socks and coats are subsets of clothing, right? So you would uh, not be inaccurate to point to my socks and refer to them as my clothes, because they are in a way, my clothes, they're a subset at least of my clothes. You don't mean when you do that that you're referring to all of my clothing. You are referring to that as a piece of my clothing, but they're still my clothes. Of course, sometimes that causes confusion and we understand in the course of language how necessary it is to add sometimes qualifiers and clarifiers whenever we are speaking of sets and subsets which is exactly what Paul is doing for us in Romans chapter 9. He is laying out for us this idea of sets and subsets. Ethnic Israel as a set and spiritual Israel as a subset of that. And he's really trying to carefully clarify all of this for us. If you've been with us, you know how all of this arose because of a question about God's faithfulness to His Word, really in light of Paul's declaration of salvation to all men without distinction, Jew and Gentile, with his celebration of God's faithfulness, how nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus It apparently uh, raised, or Paul, I should say, knows it would raise a question in the heart, particularly of Jews, who would have asked, if all of those things are true, then what happened to everything we have read and known about the Old Testament? What happened to the promises of God? Or as Paul uh, frames it in verse 9-6, the question would have come to their mind is, has the word of God failed? particularly all the promises related to the nation of Israel or to ethnic Jews, we might say. Paul's answer right there in that verse is an emphatic no. And his primary reason for that answer is really the second half of the verse where he says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, as we've said, this is not some attempt by the Apostle Paul to suggest that the promises made to the nation of Israel were really to, for example, believing Jews all along or believing Jews and Gentiles together in a new entity of the church. That has been the attempt of some interpreters through the years to see Paul's words in Romans 9-6 as some sort of interpretive key that then unlocks for us definitions of words in the Old Testament that they wouldn't have originally had to its original readers. So that now whenever you read a promise made in the Old Testament, we just assume that it was not really the nation of Israel that God was really talking about. It was really uh, the church in some fashion or form, or it was not really the Jerusalem uh, that he's talking about, or it it was some spiritual uh, city, some heavenly city, uh, or something like that, or all kinds of ways 
that people take this statement by the Apostle Paul as some key to unlock secret meanings away from their original meaning, original context. Many people have suggested that Paul's statement here in Romans 6 gives us justification to do that. But as we saw, nothing in Romans 9 really gives us that justification. Paul's not attempting to redefine a Jew as someone who's not racially Jewish. He's showing us that not everyone who is racially Jewish is a Jew in the way that God intended them to be. And he's not only telling us that, he's telling us that this was clear from the very beginning all the way back to the book of Genesis. He's telling us that this isn't something that had to wait for the New Testament to unlock this kind of understanding of the Old Testament, that this was something which was embedded right there in the Old Testament from the very beginning. To put all this in logical terms, Paul's not suggesting that racial Jews are now some subset of a spiritual Israel that now includes the Gentiles, but that spiritual Israel is and always has been a subset of of the population of racial Jews. Not every racial Jew is a Jew in the true sense of the word, he's telling us. His answer then is not to escape the charge that God's word has failed by subtly changing the meaning of the word so that Israel in the Old Testament no longer means Israel. His answer isn't nearly so shallow, we might say, his answer is to take the Word of God and show that in its original meaning, it never suggested such a thing. Because from the very beginning, the message of the Old Testament was that within racial Israel, within national Israel, there were only a small remnant of true Israelites, true believer, as in the language of Paul, true children of promise. Not every racial Jew is a true Israelite in the spiritual sense, and Paul is showing us that with all of these quotations, as I mentioned to you in weeks past, in Romans 9 through 11, more quotations in those three chapters than in any other section of Paul's writings in any of his letters. He is thoroughly committed to upholding the meaning of the Old Testament as it was given to its original readers. Now, as we saw last week, Paul began all the way back where he ought to begin, which was at the beginning. He began all the way back with Abraham in his explanation of this and Abraham's immediate descendants, Isaac and Ishmael. And it's through their story that he establishes the first point that we saw last week, which was that physical descent doesn't guarantee covenant blessing or physical descent doesn't guarantee covenant participation, we might say. Because he tells the story here about Isaac, and although he's never named, he also is speaking about Ishmael, and he's establishing a contrast between Ishmael and Isaac, and he does that by quoting from Genesis 21, where God says to Abraham, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In that chapter, God was explaining to Abraham that the ultimate promise 
that had been given to him of a seed, of an offspring, the promise of the Abrahamic covenant was not going to be through his first son, Ishmael, but through his second son, Isaac. Ishmael had been born to Abraham, of course, by, by means of his slave girl, Hagar, and God had made clear that this child was not the child that was the child promised to Abraham. In Genesis 17, he makes it clear that he would establish his covenant through the offspring of Abraham's wife, Sarah, who at that point was 90 years old. And so Paul's point in all this is that not all the physical descendants of Abraham are necessarily recipients of the promises given to Abraham. In the case of these two boys, it was only Isaac. There were, in other words, within Abraham's physical line, from the very beginning, certain people who were heirs of the promise and certain people who were not. In fact, Isaac was not only a recipient of the promise, he was a result of the promise. You could call him a child of promise in both manners, because he received the promise that was given to Abraham, but the whole fact of his existence, his supernatural birth, are are commonly referred to as an illustration of God's power to keep the promise in the face of daunting odds and all kinds of doubts. When people might have assumed that for whatever reason, God was giving up on his promises to Abraham and to to his descendants, Isaac and the gift of Isaac was, was frequently pointed to as an illustration of God's ability to raise up, even from the dead, as Abraham concludes himself, a child, a seed, a generation, whatever it might be, who could, um, who could fulfill that promise. In fact, if you have your uh, Bibles, look with me back at uh, Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah chapter 54, you can see one prominent example of this. When Israel was in captivity, God sends them this message to the prophet Isaiah. And he says this, Sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who had not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. He introduces this concept, this idea of barrenness here, this idea that he's going to bring about, just like he did in days of old, this newfound uh, uh, fertility for Israel when they might have thought that they were barren, when they might have thought that Perhaps God had forgotten them. He reminds them here in Isaiah 54, as he does in so many other places, that their their national barrenness is really just a, a typification of the kind of barrenness that Sarah faced, the kind of barrenness that the patriarchal mothers faced. And God is able, just as he did with Sarah, to bring up, if you will, the children of promise. So it's altogether appropriate, back in Romans 9, for Paul to use this example, because if it might appear that God's word has failed, it doesn't mean that there are not true children that God is at work through, or even that he's able to eventually bring up 
for his purpose. The current physical descendants that are in Israel are all not necessarily the ones who are supposed to receive the blessings, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't have children of promise, both in the current age or in the age to come. Now, Paul knew, as he shared this, that that example, while it might answer some questions, would be unsatisfactory to some, because he knew there would be objections when he raised it that Ishmael was born illegitimately. Even though nothing in the Abrahamic covenant and nothing in the Abrahamic call ever clarified that it was through Sarah that his son would be brought, that clarification didn't come until Genesis 17, still some would object after the fact that Ishmael was born of a slave girl and therefore was illegitimate as an heir. And so Paul moves to present a second example and a second principle for us really in understanding how All of this is working out how God is fulfilling His promise. And He illustrates through a second point, essentially, that sovereign grace is necessary for covenant inclusion. While physical descendancy may not be the the single definition, the one universal for every child of promise would be this, that they have been sovereignly elected by God to that uh, eventual inheritance. Now, Paul wants to propose that this is the way you need to understand what is at work within Israel. And he illustrates it with another story of Jacob and Esau. In verse 10, he says, and not only so, in other words, I'm going to take my argument then a, a step further. Not only so, but also... When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now here you have another story of two rival brothers, but this time they're not half-brothers. They didn't have different mothers. One of them wasn't born illegitimately. But as Paul says, they have the same father, they had the same mother, and not only that, they originated from the same moment of conception. They were twins. So in this illustration, the point becomes utterly clear, more clear than it was with Isaac, that God's working through his promised children or God's working through his elect children had nothing to do with them individually or them, we might even say, racially. Theoretically, Jacob and Esau should have both been heirs together. There was nothing in the Abrahamic covenant that would have excluded Esau. There was no legal barrier that would have kept either of them from inheriting it. But Paul's point is to show that even with the proper hereditary line, not all of Abraham's descendants were ever intended to be the children of promise. And he proves it from two different passages. First of all, from Genesis 25, which is the record of the birth of these two twins. God had promised Isaac, just like he'd promised Abraham, that he would have a seed. But just like Isaac's mother, Sarah, Isaac's wife, Rebekah, was barren. And so Isaac 
pleads with the Lord for his wife, and even though the Lord was, of course, working sovereignly to bring all this about, it just illustrates to us how through all this sovereignty, he uses things like the prayers of his people. He answers the prayer of Isaac. Not that his promise was ever in doubt, but he uses the prayer of Isaac to bring about his sovereign purpose, and Rebekah becomes pregnant. She's pregnant with twins, and we're told immediately that the twins were fighting one another in her womb. Rebecca, distressed about all this, inquires of the Lord, and the Lord answers her with a prophecy about her children, saying, two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you shall be divided, and one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. That's Genesis 25. Now, Paul reads that and interprets that or simply observes from the text as it stands what is the obvious conclusion, what should have been the obvious conclusion to anyone who had read it to begin with, that although these two children were not yet born and although they had done nothing either good or bad, in other words, that this Selection by God had absolutely no human criteria that would, that would cause him to choose one above the other. There was absolutely no regard for family, for social or legal or moral privilege. I mean, just note, first of all, just rules of family privilege are set aside simply by the fact that both of these boys were born by the same father, same mother, same moment of conception into the same family, and yet that did not guarantee them an inheritance in this promise. God declared that Jacob would be his line of succession for the promise of Abraham. And so, by extension, all those Jews of Paul's day being born of Abraham or being born of even Isaac or even being born of Jacob or being born from any other Jew doesn't guarantee you anything. Being born a Jew doesn't guarantee you anything. You still must be a child of promise or as Paul has already expounded throughout the book of Romans, you still must have faith. Faith like Abraham in order to be one of Abraham's children. None of this guarantees you anything, any more than it guarantees some of you who are here today. The fact that you were maybe born into a Christian family, raised with Christian teaching, Christian principles, baptized as an infant, or even baptized later, none of that, none of that guarantees you anything. God has no regard for anything that would privilege you by your actions, by your upbringing, by your connections. We can see that secondly because he, he takes note of how social or legal privilege was set aside. That even though these were twins and they were born at the same time, Esau was delivered first. He was the first to be born and so he would have been considered by the social structures of the day to be the firstborn son, the eldest, and would have, because of that, on the grounds of his age, even if by minutes... He would have been recognized as having special privileges as the firstborn. And in this case, 
He should have been the primary inheritor of whatever blessings came down through Isaac. But as the prophecy of Genesis makes clear, and as Paul quotes here, it didn't turn out that way. God upended what was the normal social, or we might even say legal structure, and gave those normal factors of superiority no regard. But instead, he decreed his blessing to be on the younger rather than the older. And then thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, you can see that not even moral achievement or moral standing had anything to do with God's blessing. Because Paul says, God made his declaration, although they were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad. They hadn't had, it's not that they simply didn't have opportunity to demonstrate their behavior. He's saying, without regard completely to their behavior, had absolutely no regard to the kind of people they are or would be. And so the whole point is that God's will alone was the source of the blessing, or God's will alone was the source, we might even say, of the difference. And Paul is just sort of heaping together these expressions of denial one on top of the other, to make his point utterly clear because he knows that our natural minds want to resist this fact that it's not natural capacity, it's not personal devotion, it's not anything within man, it's not even man's individual choice, man's individual faith that makes the difference. What makes the difference? He says in verse 11, the way this happened is all in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of Him who calls. So the eventual blessing, the eventual relationship that God established with Jacob and Esau's lack of relationship with God has its origin not in the men themselves, but in God. In God's purpose, which is to say that is His will, and in God's calling, which is to say His initiative, or we might even say His power. God, in other words, is not responding to men who are first calling on Him. He is calling them and then enabling them to respond to that call. That's what defines the difference. God is not simply the ratifier of men's choices. He's the cause of them. In choosing Jacob and rejecting Esau, God had regard to absolutely nothing except His sovereign purposes. Now, as I said, this is offensive to some people. And they've tried to escape the implications of what is said in Genesis or even what's said by Paul here. Many have proposed that while God made this choice before the children were born, He actually made it based on what He knew about them eventually down in the future. In other words, God made His choice based on some sort of privileged foreknowledge of what was to come. But as we saw back in Romans chapter 8, the whole word itself, foreknowledge, is problematic because it really doesn't speak about the gathering of facts and data. God doesn't gather facts and data. He's omniscient. 
He knows all things from all time from the beginning. It's not foreknowledge. It's not that God looks down through corridors of time and discovers something about these people. Foreknowledge itself is a, really a, a way of speaking of foreloving someone. And yet people have appealed to this idea. This is the old approach of Philo of Alexandria, who was a contemporary in Paul's own day in his book called Allegorical Interpretation. He says, quote, God, the creator of all living things, is thoroughly acquainted with his works. And before he has completely finished them, he comprehends their faculties with which they'll later be endowed. And he foreknows all their actions and passions. For when Rebecca, that is the patient soul, proceeds to ask an oracle from God, the answer is, two nations are in your womb, two people shall come forth from your bowels, and the one people will be stronger than the other, the elder shall serve the younger. End quote. So in other words, Philo, like so many down to our own day, read this text and attempted to explain it as somehow God responding to some faculty or some virtue that he saw in these boys eventually. But as we said, that doesn't do. Paul is piling up descriptions and qualifications to make it as plain as possible. It had nothing to do with these men. Either before they were born or after they were born, because even if God is looking down before time to see some distinguishing act or some distinguishing virtue of Jacob, it would still mean that his choice is based on some virtue. But Paul explicitly says in verse 11 that it's not because of works, but because of him who calls. Now, for some people, that makes God appear in their minds to be arbitrary or unfair. That He's not dealing fairly with all people because He's not giving all people equal opportunities then to be saved. And so they sense that it makes God seem inconsistent or capricious or arbitrary, as I said. But to be arbitrary, in the real sense of the word would mean that you are not governed by any principle, that you act according to one principle at one moment and another principle at another moment in a totally random fashion. But that's not what God is doing. He's not being inconsistent. He's not being arbitrary. In fact, in electing some to salvation and not others, God... Paul tells us, is always acting according to his own infinite, wise counsel. The counsel, as he says, of his own purpose and his own will. And so he's always consistent, but he's consistent with himself. That's the point. There is an infinitely wise, an infinitely good purpose in everything he does, The issue is simply that it's within him and not within us, not within you, which troubles people, troubles people because they want to find some distinction. They want to find some reason within themselves or within other people, but God doesn't make his choices. He doesn't obligate himself to his creatures in that way. He always stands above his creation and sovereign over it. If there is any reason for why he does this, it would simply be 
in a general way. He does it because of mercy. That, that's a particular reason, not the, excuse me, that's a general reason, not the particular reason. In other words, we're never really told in a particular way why us versus another person is chosen. But just because we don't know it doesn't mean that it isn't wise or God doesn't have one. Paul understood all this. He understood that some would foolishly say that God is arbitrary. He even anticipates it. Down in verse 14, he poses a, another question that we'll get to in uh, next week. But he asks this. He says, is there injustice on God's part? Is God being unfair? And in answering the question, he doesn't try to rescue God by saying, no, no. He, he was really, you see, he was acting according to some sort of foreknowledge. No, instead, what does he say? No, it was his mercy. In fact, down in verse 16, he states it even more clearly. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's not human will, it's not human choice, it isn't human faith that is the ultimately determining factor in God's election. Ultimately, it is His mercy. In other words, when choosing those whom He saves and those whom He doesn't, God is acting in accordance with His own divine and eternal purposes of mercy. Or another way to say that is that the condition or the governing reason why God chooses doesn't lie within the creature, it lies within the creator. God, in other words, as I said, is not the ratifier of our fundamental choices. He's the ultimate decider. If you are saved, the reason you are saved has nothing whatsoever to do with you. Nothing. Nothing to do with your wisdom Nothing to do with your virtue. Nothing to do with your anticipated character or actions or any of those things. There's absolutely no reason that you can give that would ever explain God's choice of you. Or another person for that matter. So that you're left baffled by the display of His grace and humbled. Ephesians 1.5 says, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will and to the praise of His glorious grace. We know His overall purpose, which is to put His mercy on display. We know His purpose is to bring praise and honor and glory to His name among those who are redeemed. As to his particular purpose in choosing you over another person, there's no way you could ever know that. There's no way you ever will know that because the reason doesn't lie within you but in the secret counsels of God's mind and purpose. So when Paul quotes Genesis 25, 23 here, the older will serve the younger, he's not just telling us God had some sort of prophetic insight into what would eventually happen with these boys. He's pointing out 
the way God caused it all to happen. In fact, he makes it clear in verse 13 whenever he he moves to a second quotation, this time from the book of Malachi. He takes us from the words in the very beginning there in Genesis all the way to the very end, Malachi, one of the final books written in the Old Testament era. And he lets us know that the way things turned out or the reason why things turned out the way they did, it is, as God says to Malachi, and Paul quotes here, because God... Or Jacob, uh, I loved, and Esau, I hated. In other words, God's not just seeing the eventual outcome. This was God determining the outcome. This was God determining to love Jacob and to hate Esau. Someone might say, yes, but in Malachi, God's, he's not talking about individuals there. He's, he's really... This is the end of Old Testament history, if you will. And, and so God is speaking about not Jacob and Esau, not as individuals, but as nations. He's really looking at them as uh, all of their descendants. And this is all language of election that doesn't really have anything to do with individuals because he's really talking about electing nations. Romans 9 wasn't meant, they would say, to talk about individual election. Some have even tried to Avoid the doctrine of, of individual, excuse me, of national election by trying to suggest this is only about individuals. But both groups really miss the point. And the point is, Paul's not separating the two. He's not trying to separate the two. By choosing two passages and using them together back to back, He's showing that to accept the doctrine of God's divine election is to accept his work at the individual as well as the national level. Because God is telling Malachi that while his choice certainly has implications in Malachi chapter 1 for the nations that followed Jacob and Esau, it was still a choice that began with individuals. The quote in Malachi, in other words, deals with the natural-born descendants of these two nations, Edom and Israel, but it deals with them only as implications of what he did with the heads of these two nations. But of course, Paul's main point here is primarily in relation to Abraham and Isaac, both Jacob and Esau, should have had a rightful claim to the relationship to a relationship with God, but within that physical line, God was indicating from the very beginning that not all who are in Israel are of Israel. Not everyone in the physical line God chooses. God chose only Jacob and Esau, one of Abraham's descendants, was rejected. Paul, of course, is going to expand on this At the end of chapter 9, in detail in chapter 10 and chapter 11, showing that the principle holds true. Throughout the Old Testament, God always had an Israel within Israel. He always had what sometimes is called the remnant. Not every physical descendant is a recipient of God's promise. And so to look around in his own day and see that not every Jew was believing was not in any way an assault against the Word of God. In fact, it just typified what had always been the case with God's Word. There was no sense that somehow the Word of God had failed. 
One more important implication. As we think about what Paul says here, quoting Malachi, is a recognition that in all this, for all of this to take place, God, we must understand that God not only loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. That's, that's, again, language people struggle with. Speaking about loving is not a struggle, but speaking about God hating is a struggle. It is offensive to some people, as if God is somehow treating Esau unfairly. And so a number of people have tried to suggest that this means that God loved Jacob, but he loved Esau less. Some people even translate it that way. But really, the context of Malachi doesn't let you do that. Malachi really doesn't allow for that kind of interpretation because Malachi 1, the Lord declares, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build but I will tear it down, they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is indignant forever. End quote. This is, um, this is not just less love. This is indignation. This is disfavor, displeasure. This is anger. So the text is clear. But don't mistake that to mean that somehow God is unfair to Esau. It would only be unfair if Esau didn't deserve God's wrath. If he didn't deserve God's hatred, God's anger. But Paul has already labored throughout the book of Romans so that you and I are clear that every person born in this world is born under the wrath of God. He opens a book declaring that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then in Romans 5... He tells us that we were all enemies of God. He tells us further in that chapter that every one of us who were born in Adam were born under Adam's curse. In Romans 8, he already told us that our natural state of minds, or in our natural state of minds, we are hostile toward God and we cannot please Him. He cannot be pleased with us. If we're outside of Christ. So if we really understand what Paul has told us so far about humanity, about its sinful state, then it doesn't shock us to read that God hated Esau. Or why he would hate really anyone. What really shocks us is why he didn't hate Jacob. What really ought to shock you is why he doesn't hate you. What ought to befuddle your mind isn't that God doesn't save some what ought to befuddle your mind is why he saves anyone Jacob especially who was known as the deceiver he would have been known for devising schemes and tricking people even tricking his own brother out of his birthright and having no mercy when he begged to reverse the decision Most people who knew Jacob wouldn't have considered him the kind of guy you'd want to be around. But God declares that he loved him. 
That's the real mystery. This astounding reality of election, not that God hates some, but he chooses to save some. That for some reason that we cannot explain, that has nothing to do with us, nothing to do with anything innate and inherent in us, that in the goodness and the wise counsels of God's mind, that he has purposed to show mercy, mercy to some, for whom we will ever, or in whom I should say, we will always be grateful to him. You know, um, we don't propose to unfold for you all of those secret counsels in God's mind here today, but we do tell you this, that while we don't know God's purposes, we do know that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is saved, as Paul eventually says in, verse, in chapter 10, that, that those who want God's mercy, He freely gives it. If you're here today, you hear all this, you understand God's anger because you know you're under it. You feel it, you sense it. You feel the guilt and the shame of your sin. You feel the alienation from God. You see, as you look around your life, the consequences of your choices. We're here to tell you today that God is a merciful God. He saves. And if you're here today, that's what you need. God's not asking you to perform anything for Him. He's not asking you to do some good deed. He's not suggesting that you have to be connected to this church or to a particular family or to any kind of religious deed. All you need is a hunger and a thirst for His mercy. If you cry out for it, the Lord will save you. He'll save you. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for these sobering words. They are deep and... uh, challenging, profound, but also exalting. They lift us up beyond any kind of pretense of worthiness. They help us to see that we were in that place of wrath, born as children of wrath. But they also help us to re-examine again the precious gift of your mercy. Lord, we could ask why. Why have you been so merciful to us? And no answer to be given except the call for us to exalt your grace. We do that, Lord. We sing your praise. We thank you for your kindness. And we would pray that you would show your mercy even on those who are here among us today who don't know you who have no relationship with you. Would you save them? Would you show your kindness to them for the sake of your glorious grace? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.